0: This episode is brought to you by the Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatGrowAlong.com. This week on Meet and Three, we're sipping on stories about how access, legislation, and circumstance affect what we drink.
1: I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero-proof and alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing.
0: This plant's been around for millions of years, and uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre-American, uh, that it just should have a very prominent place in our society, you know, for a lot of different reasons. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. Tune in to Meet and Three. Available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>
1: Well, hello welcome to all in the industry on heritage radio network i'm your host sherry bayer and it is wednesday march 10th 2021 this is the 282nd episode of this series which is dedicated to behind the scenes talent in the hospitality industry today my guest is eater's very own eic and svp at vox media and i will introduce her fully in a moment first as i do in every show i will start out with my pr tip And then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to set goals and then work to achieve them. Take time to think about what you would like to undertake, both big and small, in the near future and more long term, and then focus on how to do so. Be sure to stay true to your mission and communicate your goals with others so they can be most supportive. Understand that with the right mindset, attitude, and dedication, you can accomplish anything. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really thrilled to have my guest joining me today. It is Amanda Clute. She is the Editor-in-Chief of Eater and a Senior Vice President at Vox Media. In her role as EIC, Amanda oversees all written, video, and audio content across the Eater network of sites, in addition to TV shows, events, and partnerships. In over a dozen years at Eater, she transformed the publication from a niche restaurant blog into one of the most authoritative food media brands, spanning dozens of cities and telling stories across multiple platforms. Eater has won multiple James Beard, National Magazine, and Emmy Awards. Without further ado, Amanda, welcome to the show.
2: Hi! Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I know it's been it's been a while. I know I I reached out to have you on my show um, in the past, and we finally are making it work. And uh, I'm I'm thrilled because you. I mean, I just want to dive into everything you're doing today and how you how you got there because um, I'm thinking back to when I met you. Um, actually, I have this memory of Ben introducing us at a Village Voice event <laughs> um, when 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 you were when love it, it. You okay were going makes be, sense yeah yeah no and 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 saying you were going to be the new I think it was editor in chief at the time but. Um, I just I really have that memory. Um, But before before we get into that, let's go a little further back with your background. Where did you where did you grow up? And did you study journalism? Did you always want to be in media? Sure. Yeah. So
2: I I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Boston in Massachusetts, and I went to NYU and pretty quickly uh, decided to focus on journalism as my major, and all of my internships were at newspapers and magazines and journalistic outlets. So it, I didn't know right away going into college, but I figured it out pretty quickly thereafter. Um, and also, all through high school and college, I waitressed, so I was very, I had very intimate knowledge of, you know, the inner workings of restaurants, and restaurants always interest me. So I think this kind of combined the two.
1: Right. So um, so you must have waitressed in, in the city then, um, which uh, is amazing experience <laughs> for sure. I did. I waitressed a little bit
2: in the East Village, actually at a bunch of different places in the East Village. And then when I was in Massachusetts, I waitressed for a long time at Friendly's, uh, a beloved restaurant chain that I think has now gone bankrupt twice.
1: Oh, wow. I have prior experience from my high school days of uh, waiting tables at Bennigan's and Chili's, so <laughs> um, fond memories of that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> similar vibes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, well, we sang "Happy Happy Birthday" at Bennigan's, so <laughs> I still know the tune. Um, I don't know if you did that at Friendly's, <laughs> but um, it's definitely it's definitely good, great experience to have. I always think back of, about about those those jobs, and I know for me, it's definitely restaurant experience has helped in what I do now with working with restaurants. So, um, so, so what then led you to Eater?
2: Uh, so out of college, I got, my first job was at Metro, the free newspaper, uh, not as a writer, but as their office manager. I tried to get a job as a writer there and there weren't any openings. So I took a position as office manager, but it allowed me to freelance quite a bit, and I spent all that time, I went to food writing classes, I tried to meet as many people as I possibly could, and that led me to a job at Gridskipper, which was the travel publication for Gawker Media, and I was there for about a year, and at the time, the person running the editorial side of Gawker was Lockhart Steele, who was a co-founder of Eater, and back then, Eater was just a little side project of his, and Gawker was the real job. But um, eventually he left Gawker to fully focus on Eater and Sister Sites curbed and wrecked. And I found out about after a year of Grid Skipper that they were looking for another New York editor. So in 2008, I moved over to Eater and became their, I think their associate New York editor. And uh, I've been there ever since. So that was 13 years ago, just this February.
1: Wow. Amazing. And yeah, and it was, I mean, Ben Leventhal and Locker at Steel, I, I think they founded Eater. And it was July, 2005. So three years later, you're on board. And then what was mm-hmm. it like then? I mean, you know, at the beginning, um, how many people were on the team? What were your responsibilities? Um, obviously, they've changed tremendously over the years as the, the brand has grown.
2: Yeah, I mean, in 2008, when I started, it was a very small network of restaurant blogs. So we had one in New York, one in San Francisco, LA, Chicago, and Miami. And the New York team, it was about six people in a shared office space, kind of like a WeWork um, before WeWork existed. And uh, it was just Ben and myself covering New York. And I eventually got to take over writing the New York site. But it was it was very small. And it was very bloggy. We were writing about restaurant openings and closings and chefs on the move, which is still part of our bread and butter. Now it's just we cover so much more now. And then it was very fast paced, very quick, a lot of posts every single day, not um, usually not a ton of substance. It was very gossipy and very newsy.
1: Yeah, well, over the years, as I mean, I started working for myself in two thousand three, and I was doing restaurant PR even before that. So I remember when it started, and I just know over all these years, it's always been a, a must read. I would say for for someone who who works in restaurant PR, for, so um, and that I think says a lot <laughs> for for what it started as and and how how it's how it's grown all these years. And I'm always thinking, I know because I'm based in New York and so are you, I'm always thinking I'm I'm more Eater NY focused, but you are covering as, as mm-hmm. the editor-in-chief, you're responsible or overseeing all of the cities you're in. I don't even know, how many cities are you in now?
2: <laughs> we have over two dozen now. Uh, and now we have a national site where... We do a lot of um, long-form journalism, investigations, cultural critiques, and then we also have a video program, a a couple television shows, a podcast. So it's really expanded in all kinds of ways. Um, But it's still built on that DNA that you and I both know from, you know, the early aughts.
1: Yeah, true. So what's what's a day in the life typically or a... a a typical week maybe, um, with how you're overseeing all of the sites and all of your roles, because I do also love your podcast, which, um, I don't know, you were doing it weekly, but you now are doing it, I think bi-weekly, but it's, um, I look forward to it on Fridays.
2: Yeah. Um, where my, my, a typical week or a day is. I think, split between a lot of different responsibilities I have these days. So part of it is editorial and making sure I'm doing a good job leading our coverage and weighing in on how we are how we are focus, focusing our resources and attention across our city sites and what kinds of video work we're doing and everything happening on Instagram and social media. Uh, and then also doing my own creative projects like our podcast and my newsletter. Um, but then another big chunk of my time is spent on some of the less glamorous parts of running a really big team. We have about 80 people and I spend a lot of time talking to HR and talking to recruitment and trying to make sure our employees are supported and making sure they have what they need and and dealing with any issues that come up with, you know, the team mechanics. And then I think the other big part of my job is the business side now that i you know, I have this silly title of SBP, but what it basically means is I now am more responsible for the business. So I need to be involved in the conversations we're having with advertisers and the way in which we're trying to diversify our business as a really big media company and as a growing publication.
1: I wouldn't say it's silly. I think it's a great title. <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> it's impressive. Um, but yeah, and that's, I mean, you have you have a lot on your plate for sure. What, how have things changed this past year with the pandemic as far as, uh, I'm assuming you, you have a lot of Zoom calls, <laughs> um, and it's hard to believe it's been a year, hard to believe.
2: Yes, I'm on, I'm on Zoom all day, every day, I'm one of those, uh, so that's, that's a lot, uh, but yes, oh my God, I know, we're just coming up on that week. Um, Yeah, I mean, my my life is definitely spent more on Zoom. There are a lot of problems that have been thrown our way that I never would have expected. Uh, Same as with anyone who's in, I guess, any industry, but definitely in media running a team. Um, For the reporters, it's it's been a huge shift because the you know our pillars have always been news and service but we've definitely focused a lot more on news over the last year as it's become so crucial to restaurants and our audiences trying to figure out what's been going on so i think it's kind of validated our model which is having actual journalists on the ground in so many cities across the us to be able to cover this in an authoritative and useful way for people who are in those localities because I think the pandemic has been so local, even though we share a lot of the same issues and the same fears, it's very different living in New York than it is living in Miami right now.
1: Yeah, well, I I know that one for sure. I was just, I actually just went down to Miami um, for the first time in a year to visit my my family and uh, saw the scene there. So, and I got back to New York and it was late at night and the city was so quiet and I was, I forget, I forgot even just being away for a couple of days, how, um, you know, after 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock that the city is just um, shut down. It's not like what it was, but um, I know like you, I'm a huge uh, uh, advocate or, you know, supporter of the industry and restaurants and um, I've been trying to dine out and and support uh, as much as I can. And seeing the changes in the city have have been um, you know living here and seeing it is it's been such an uh, a crazy experience and and your coverage at eater I have to say you've done such a great job at at covering what's happening with openings and unfortunately closings um and also on your podcast i do I do really appreciate how you bring on editors from the different cities to talk about what's happening there because that to me Mm -hmm. has been really, uh, it's been so informative if I'm not reading all of the city's, um, you know, sites every day on Eater, but it kind of fills me in on what's happening in LA or, or New Orleans. Yeah, absolutely. So what is it, um, what is it about the restaurant industry that you love most covering? And then what would you say has been challenging over either now or most challenging now or over the years?
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i always loved covering restaurants because... They're just so interesting and full of interesting characters. And people don't get into the business usually to make a lot of money. Most restaurants in America are independently owned and have fewer than 50 employees. And it's usually a place that's full of passion and character and... You know, I love food, but the reason I've loved working at Eater is because it's not about the food, it's about the restaurant. It's about the vibe and the music and the design and the people who go there and how a restaurant fits into a certain neighborhood, into a certain city. And I just love all of those elements that you can dive into and the way that you can really expand upon coverage in so many different angles. Um, So that's why I think I'll never get tired of restaurants. What makes it challenging... Now, more than ever, but I think this has always been the case is just um I think the perspectives of people in the industry we've we've always gotten criticism from them that we are not supporting them enough, that we are not enough of a cheerleader for them, which is not really our role. And then we also get criticism from the other side, people saying we you know, are all we do is publicity for restaurants and we aren't critical enough, and it's it's hard to square with the criticism, but I think it's with anything. You just have to listen and then follow your vision and your mission.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I would think that would be challenging and that is, yeah. Follow, follow your mission for sure. Let me ask you my question from my last guest on episode 281. I had on Hong Timey. She is the chef and owner of Timey Love, a pop-up now in the West village. And she wants to know what is the best way to enjoy a meal without expectations?
2: I think actually this pandemic has helped me learn to have no to low expectations going into a situation. Now, when I go to restaurants, I'm just looking forward to having any kind of interaction uh, with that restaurant experience and with the person I'm with. And if, the meal ends up being spectacular on top of that, or if the service ends up being spectacular on top of that, it's just a bonus because I think we've learned just the value of being able to go out with one another and have someone else create an experience for us that it's definitely made me less judgmental or picky um, or disappointed if things don't go my way than I would have been in the past. Yeah,
1: I, I hear you on that. I mean, I think this, this period has certainly taught us a lot, <laughs> and uh, slowed us down. And also, I mean, appreciated appreciate things even more. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What um, what's next for eater? Uh, if that you can share with us. I mean, what are you what are you looking forward to? Or are there, are there any changes upcoming?
2: Yeah, I mean, this pandemic uh, allowed us the opportunity to write more about uh, how to engage with restaurants, how to engage with food in the home. So as soon as uh, lockdown happened in March, we launched a section called Eater at Home where we started to explore um Cooking in a way, but also just what it is to exist in the home, like shopping advice, um, technique advice, freezer advice, like what shows you should be watching and what podcasts you should be listening to. And I think there's such an audience and a desire for that kind of work that we're just going to lean into it over the next year and see if we can continue this going and, and bring our voice to... Uh, a part of food media that is kind of saturated, but we still think there's a new way to approach it and we can use it as kind of a way to fill out the rest of our coverage, which is more, you know, restaurant focused and focused on dining out.
1: Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, and it made sense that you launched that. I mean, it was a a needed uh, service or resource for people uh, that maybe we didn't, see coming but (laughs) it came uh so that's great okay one more question before we take a little break how about uh what's your advice what's your advice for um someone who wants to be a food journalist and uh not not necessarily even work at eater maybe work at eater but just uh get into to food or restaurant writing
2: um, I mean, for aspiring food journalists, I think the key is to get out there, find stories, pitch as often as you can. Don't be dissuaded if the first pitch doesn't land. Um, reach out to people for connections and advice. But and also just don't assume that everybody knows every story. Like it, if you are really close um, like you know your neighborhood really well, you know all the people in your neighborhood, there's something interesting happening there, you are an expert in that and you should be pitching it. So I would just work really hard to find the angle and and keep pitching, keep trying to connect with editors.
1: Awesome. Great advice. Okay, so let's take a little break. We'll uh, come back and we'll have my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news, I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
0: This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along, a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions, or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, house plants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com.
1: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Amanda Klute. She's the editor-in-chief of Eater and a senior vice president at Vox Media. She also co-hosts the Eater's Digest podcast. And Amanda, it is now time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm going to name a couple of things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Cool. You ready? Yep. All right, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, soft cocktail or champagne? Ooh, Cocktail tasting menu or a la carte? a la carte. Small plates or large plates? Uh, I guess small plates. Okay, how about communal table or chef's counter? Oh, chef's counter, 100%. I'm with you on that one. Okay, tipping or all-inclusive charge?
2: Ooh, uh I enjoy an all-inclusive. I love a tip-free restaurant.
1: All right, cool. How about writing your newsletter or podcasting? Oh, um, hmm. that's
2: tough. Maybe my newsletter because I get to cover a lot more in one in one editorial product.
1: Yeah, I have to say I love your newsletter. It's Thank really you. It's, yeah, it's really well done. And I love that you provide the links and you it's, you know, it's, they're short little snippets. Like it's, it's, uh, it's great. So I say, love it. Keep thank at. you. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Okay. Outdoor patio, tent, igloo, yurt, or any other, I don't know, the structure you've dined in. <laughs> I
2: love, I love a shed with an electric heater where there are, uh, intense divisions between tables. So you feel really safe. You're fairly warm, uh, but you can still see the life around you. I find the yurts you're a little cut off, and it feels a little weird.
1: Okay, cool. I love I love that you're very specific on that. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, I've been doing a lot
2: of outdoor dining, so I feel like a true expert now.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And um, it, it's changed a lot too with yep. with what's been available. So, okay, two more. I have a cheese plate or dessert. Uh, dessert. And Manhattan or Brooklyn? Uh, Oof, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Cool. That's the game. That's fun. fun. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love playing my game with people. Always different. Okay. So, for industry news, it was obvious to me what the story was this week that we should talk about. And uh, the first article that came out was. In time, and it's entitled "The Senate Passed a 1.9 Trillion COVID-19 Relief Bill." Here's what's in it by Alana Abramson, and this is talking about um, this this new relief bill that includes. Relief for restaurants, which um, the Independent Restaurant Coalition has been fighting for among among other organizations, and that includes uh, the bill provides twenty eight point six billion in grant relief specifically for restaurants, which have been particularly decimated by this pandemic. So mm-hmm. it's amazing. I mean, they've they've been working really hard on it for a long time.
2: Yes, it's incredible. Um, it's it. The whole so much in this bill is so incredible for so many people working in restaurants. I think that 28 plus billion in relief is huge. But there, there are other factors in the bill that will really change the lives of restaurant industry workers.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I I. I agree, and they've been, you know, fighting for this for this whole year, and and then, you know, I said this was the first piece I saw in it, but I saw um, today the Washington Post has an article by Tim Carmen, and I also saw uh, Ryan Sutton on Eater New mm-hmm. York has a an article that's entitled "What Biden's 1.9 trillion stimulus meals me- bill means for restaurants workers and families," and I started I started looking through what Ryan wrote because he always. He really broke it down and has He's a lot of He's a true wonk, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I, I, I have to, I have to dive more into that later. But it's, it's, it's wonderful news, and. Um, I think uh, I'm I'm excited I'm excited for restaurants and I have to just give a shout out to the IRC and everyone that's been involved in it and also Andrew Ridgy with the New York City Hospitality Alliance and the Restaurant Association. I mean, people have been working really hard this whole year to to help save restaurants.
2: Yeah, and I. I think what's incredible about this versus the other relief efforts that have passed is that these are real grants. They're not loans that could be turned into grants, which is what PPP was. And also there's a potential here to have almost all of your losses relieved. So if you get this grant, you could really stand to survive in a world where maybe you wouldn't have otherwise. I think the big question is, will the you know, almost $30 billion be enough given how big this restaurant is. Like I know the IRC was originally looking for 120 billion, but still it's, it's a huge number. I know there are a lot of other industries that are kind of bitter about it, (laughs) you know, like the gym owners and other industries that did not get special carve out. So it is huge for restaurant owners.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, it's, it's been challenging for so many industries It just, and, um, I guess just being that we're, how, what we do for a living and just being so close to restaurants and, and, and seeing the struggle, it's, um, I'm really glad that, that restaurants uh, got the recognition and what, you know, some help. Um, So, um, but yeah, everyone, everyone needs help getting through this Mm -hmm. time. So, um, but it's, it's a great, it's a great, exciting, exciting time. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so one announcement I have, um, just heads up, my all-in-the-industry show here has been nominated for the Taste Awards in the Best Food or Drink Radio Broadcast Category, and now is the time to vote for Viewer's Choice, because voting ends this Friday the 12th, so um, greatly appreciate it. If you want to vote for our show, you could go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash vote, and, um, yeah, many thanks in advance. So um, it's time for my solo dining experience. So this week um, I, had a, I had a really good one. I went to the chef-in-residence at Blue Hill Stone Barns with Chef Omar Tate. So here's the rundown. The location, 630 Bedford Road, Pancantico Hills, New York, the concept. So, this first half of 2021, Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is Chef Bar- Dan Barber's acclaimed farm-to-table restaurant, two Michelin-star restaurant, a fabulous, fabulous place. Um, they've transformed into a chef-in-residence program that's supporting new resident chefs for five-week periods, and the chefs are collaborating with Stone Barns Center farmers and other Hudson Valley producers to bring their unique culinary perspectives to our regional landscape. So this, I went for a lunch and the chef was Omar Tate and he was Esquire magazine's 2020 chef of, of the year, who's also a deeply insightful poet and artist. And so why did I go? Um, well, I've always wanted to try Chef Omer's food. I've read a lot about him. And it was also my birthday, and or recently my birthday, I decided to treat myself. So my experience, I, I made a reservation for one on talk. Uh, this is you pay in advance. Uh, I booked it about three weeks ahead. I went for a late lunch on Saturday. Um, everything, you know, you, once you got to the property, you started in what they called the living room, which had art that inspired uh, Chef Omar's menu. Uh, It was given a pamphlet that uh, described the art and the inspiration. And um, it said, this menu is a reflection of social themes that have been navigating, that he has been navigating throughout life, but amplified in the year of 2020. Um, So the story began there. Then I was led into the main dining room. Uh, There there were only about seven tables uh, that they were occupying. It was very, it was, indoor dining, but it was very socially distanced tables and it's just a lovely, beautiful dining room. Um, and so um, I, I had a really great experience. Omar, I, I was able to meet the chef. He brought a dish out and we were able to chat. Um, and afterward, I walked around the property a little bit too. So what did I get? So he had a tasting menu. That started out with Kool-Aid. And they also did a pairing for me with some non-alcoholic beverages uh, throughout the meal. One of them was a tasty burnt lemon tonic that was really delicious. And the menu was an exploration of black blackness in America through the lens of Northeastern migration. And some of the dishes were notes from a black pantry, a still life. There was Untitled, A Toad in the Hole for Latasha Harlan's. There was a Extravaganza, the course at the end is barbecue, which was way more than I could eat. um and then desserts. it was a buttermilk ice cream, a classic cake, and coffee with cabin spice ice ice cream, and of course it had to end with honeysuckle ice cream. They also sent me and everyone home with two fresh breads. So my take it was wonderful. it was a really it was a really amazing experience, and I have to say solo dining, tasting menus. Are, are the way to go. I mean, not maybe not always, but I think you really, you really get to take in the experience because you're just there to enjoy the creations of the chef. And, um, so I was glad I went. The ambiance is a gorgeous farmhouse dining room. It has lots of natural light and windows, um, in the, in the farm setting in the background. And as I said, there were very socially distanced tables in the center of the room. They had a table that had, um, memorabilia that the chef put together. And also they were playing a soundtrack that the chef um, put together. And normally at at Stone Barns, they have no music. So it was was a unique experience. I'd say it's perfect for food lovers who appreciate a story behind the cuisine. Interesting tidbit, Honeysuckle, which was a pop-up in Philadelphia, will eventually become a community center in West Philly with a mission of claiming space for Black food in America. And also interesting tidbit, Omar's mom and family was dining there when I was there too. So that was, that was cool. Uh, Personal fun fact. I have been, or I dined at Blue Hill Stone Barns once before, and it was like ten years ago. It was a while, and I was with a group of friends. And it goes down in history. It's the longest meal I've ever had because we were there for over seven hours. And I was with the chef at the table, so I know we got sent out some extra courses then. But it was it was incredible. But it was long. This meal, uh, this lunch, was about three hours. So the cost of the meal was two hundred and fifty dollars. That's not including the tax on it and twenty two percent admin fee would i go back yes their website is stonebarnscenter.org and um yeah so that's my splurge my splurge the biggest one i've had in over a year <laughs> 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 um yeah so uh and if people want to check it out the upcoming chefs are johnny ortiz and victoria blamey from new york city um coming up so have you you've heard about this uh this uh, Yes, yes, it sounds so (laughs)
2: cool. Um, And I agree the length of meals like that is sometimes a little taxing, especially after a year of not having proper sit down meals, uh, but sometimes worth worth the, the time and the expense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, again, like this is not, I haven't, I haven't done like this in a long time and it it happened to go by pretty fast. I would say, you know, it was, it was a quick three hours, which might sound weird, (laughs) but. (laughs) No, it makes sense. Um, And Yeah. And he was lovely. I, I, you know, I, I was, I really appreciated that. I, I got to meet, meet Chef. Chef Omar, and um, we talked about him possibly coming on my show in the future, so, so oh, well. I'm going to have to follow up about that. Cool. Okay, so it's time for the final question. So my next guests are chef and owner Chris Chip alone and owner and operator John Winterman of Francie, which is a neighborhood grocery and destination restaurant in South Williamsburg, Brooklyn, that debuted in December after being delayed. I think they were originally supposed to open in April and um, then they opened and then indoor dining closed and they had to shut and now they're open again. So um, I'm excited to to chat with them about what's been happening with the opening of Francie. Uh, but Amanda, what would you like to ask Chris and John?
2: I guess I wonder how this experience of opening during a pandemic has maybe permanently altered their outlook on their business and this industry and if there's something that's fundamentally changed about how they see the industry even after
1: all this is over Cool. i will find out i mean yeah it's a great question they're both such experienced restaurateurs and this has certainly been a a a new experience for for them and everyone so (laughs) Um, but thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you're amazing. And I love Eater and everything you do. So, um, you know, I wish you much continued success. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a pure joy. Oh, good. I'm so glad. And I hope to see you sooner than yes. later. I miss, I miss me that. Me too.
2: <laughs> Someday <laughs> this year,
1: I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. We will see each other again in person. Love it. All right. Well, thank you so thank much. You Sherry. My guest today has been Amanda Klute. She's the editor-in-chief of Eater and a senior vice president at Vox Media. Website is Eater.com, and you can follow her on social media at at Klute. That's K-L-U-D-T. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com sherrybayer.com, and allintheindustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang. And thanks again to my guest, Amanda Klute. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'm taking next week off, so I will be back with a new show on Wednesday, March 24th. That will be with Chris and John. So I hope you'll tune in then. Stay safe and well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.